you go through the periods of history and you can't talk about how history has developed without talking about the influence of Christianity. I, I entered in um, being a little bit more anxious about the separation of church and state and feeling like, you know, there was a big tension in my department. Most of them uh, were not believers. I came in for Wheaton College and on the top of my paperwork said for Christ and his kingdom. And so they were like, what are you going to do in here when you walk in the classroom? Hey friends, welcome to our special edition podcast called Faith at Work. I'm your host, Jen Kelly, joined by fellow pastor, Corey Shoemate. Hello. And we get the joy of bringing you conversations that are all about integrating faith and work and why every job matters. We're interviewing Christ followers from a variety of work backgrounds to help stir our imaginations, to give us new insights and practical ways to think about how we live out our faith at work. Hey friends, Pastor Corey here. Hope you all are doing well. I want you to take a moment and consider the following topics with me. You ready? Vaccines, masks on students, Zoom classrooms, school curriculum on the topics of gender identity and race. As you think about that, my guess is you have a few opinions about those things. Uh, Well, today we are going to be interviewing two women who have lived the last two and a half years at the intersection of all of the opinions about all of those things and more because they're teachers. So in the studio today, we have with us Kate Hertz and Michelle Keenan, two women from our very own church family who've spent a lot of time thinking about how they do their work in a way that is marked by wisdom and integrity and faith. To be in the field of education in America right now as a Christ follower requires not only a firm grounding in scripture, but it also requires a person to have their finger on the pulse of what is happening in our constantly shifting cultural context. So as you're listening today, maybe you are somebody who is in education, whether private or public or homeschooling, or maybe you're just listening as someone in a different field. Uh, Wherever you're at, I promise that today's conversation is going to be worth your time. So Kate, Michelle, thanks so much for joining us today. We are so excited. Uh, Would you each take a couple minutes and tell us more about who you are and your background in education? Thank you both for having us. We're really excited to be here. Um, I'm Kate Hertz, and I have always wanted to be a teacher ever since I was a little girl. I was in a private school growing up until I was in sixth grade, and then private school was no longer available in that community, and so I shifted into a public school. So I have had quite a lot of different experiences in my own personal education. I went to a private college, and then I made the choice to teach in public schools. I've been there for 23 years. Um, I have been nationally board certified, and so that's a distinction that about 3% of the nation's teachers hold, and so I'm very proud of that and um, have been in a lot of different roles in the same school for the last 23 years. And I am Michelle Keenan. I think I knew I wanted to be a teacher when I was very young, and I kept finding myself in situations where I was constantly teaching people, from seventh grade, uh, teaching the neighbor down the street violin when she was in fourth grade, tutoring her, um, to babysitting for another neighbor's family uh, when their daughter was diagnosed with autism and them training me through how to do different kinds of therapy for her. Uh, It just seemed like this kept coming up over and over again that I was in situations where I was um, uh, being asked to teach people around me. And so uh, that was something that I just uh, decided to pursue. Uh, I went to Wheaton College and Wheaton Graduate School, got a Master of Arts in Teaching, and then taught in uh, an area of public school uh, for high school in language arts for about eight years. 
Wow. Ladies, again, I'm I'm so excited and thrilled that you are both joining us. And so before we get into the weeds, as Corey mentioned um, earlier on all the topics, I want to talk about something fun. So we want to know, Inquiring Minds wants to know, what is your least favorite subject in school and why? My least favorite was speech growing up. I had this crusty old speech teacher who was like the founder of the speech program in Illinois. But by the time I had him, he was about a year away from passing away. Oh and he, he would sit at his desk with lots of things, including paperweights on them. And if you said any speech clutter in your speech, you would get something thrown at you. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <terrifying. laughs> he never said the word like or um in a speech unless you wanted something. Wow. That's why you're so articulate today. Yes. <laughs> so you call that speech clutter? So called it? Yes, wow. yes. Yeah. Wow. Uh, mine would have to be math. I have just been always um, mathematically challenged. And then we moved when I was in the middle of third grade and somehow missed uh, getting to do multiplication tables at my previous school before we went to the next one. And I always look back at my third grade math experience and just see that I wasn't as advanced in math as the others were to the new school that I moved to. And that just set me back. And so... Math was always a struggle. I could do it, but I just conceptually never fully understood it to the level I wanted to. So math was not fun. Yeah, so I second that one. I moved around everywhere as a child, and so I was constantly behind. I don't know. It's really funny, too, because I was a bank manager at one time and managed millions of dollars, and I can't divide, subtract, add to save my life. So Different skill sets. (laughs) Yes, they are. Spoken like an educator. Spoken like... This is a tough one for me because I was so good at just about every subject and nearly perfect in every way. Oh, my... Okay. (laughs) Okay, maybe not. Um, no, there there was no shortage of classes that I had a very hard time with. I'm thinking uh, AP Art History was the singular worst class that I ever had. It was just here's here's the piece of art, and you just had to memorize like seven facts about that piece of art, like who it was by and what era and what technique, and and then it was like here's your final exam, which you have 75 of these pieces of art, and you just have to list those seven things, and it was drudgery and awful. That's why his walls are blank right now. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right. Uh, Well, hey, as I mentioned, integrating faith at work, especially in education, is not an easy task. Uh, So would you each uh, tell us why you got into education and maybe how your journey, you guys have both been in this for a long time, how your journey has evolved over the years? I guess I can go ahead and take that one first. Um, I had a nun, actually, at my school that I was at um, tell me that I needed to be a teacher. And so it was a very interesting uh, experience because for the longest time as a little kid, I thought I wanted to be an anthropologist. Mm. And um, I now see that the professions are very closely related, um, that you're really looking at people and you're studying people. But um, I had this nun who actually told me that I needed to be a teacher. And it kind of planted that seed for me. And kind of like Michelle was saying earlier, just found myself in situations where I ended up teaching people constantly. Um, I'd have friends who would call me and say, hey, I think you really understood this concept. Can you help teach it to me? And so I did and um, fell into just loving it. And then I, the question became, what do I teach? I loved, I was a choir kid growing up. And so I loved being in choir. I loved getting to sing. I loved getting to act and be on stage. But I really loved story is what I figured out and got to really fall into wanting to teach English is what I decided would be where I wanted to land. And so I did that. And 
along the way, I've just attained a lot of different experiences. I have taught in the classroom solely. I have been an instructional coach for the last six years. This is the first year that I am back in the classroom full-time um, as an English teacher and mm. getting to teach British literature, which is a passion of mine that I love to teach. And so I get to do quite a few th different things as an educator um, and have had just a, a ton of fun along the way. That's British awesome. literature. God bless you. <laughs> Uh, like I said earlier, I went into teaching because it seemed like it kept coming across my path, that that was something that uh, I was growing in skill at and seeing the need for it around me. I, I intellectually really liked the having to solve problems on the spot of having a challenge in front of me and having to integrate everything that I knew to figure out how in this situation with this person right now, uh, am I going to help them understand and feel empowered to be able to do this? And I really, that was an invigorating uh, activity for me to just do that. I loved even the act of substitute teaching and walking into a room with no plan and an unknown group of students and having to just make something happen for that class period. Um, I, I guess when I look through uh, uh, going further into education, um, I really enjoyed teenagers and thinking through uh, just being at that point of life where there's, there's so much possibility ahead of you and it's so overwhelming and the pressure of having to like start to master more skills uh, when you have these compounding layers of feeling insecure at the gaps that you've had and the insecurities that you've had growing up. Um, how do you help students move through that stage in a way that they can launch into life? And so the combination of like that problem solving plus thinking through how can I help these students that are on the verge of becoming adults launch and do that successfully. Man, that's good. I, I, I hear people often ask, what, what is it about teaching that is invigorating? Because you're doing the same thing if you're teaching the same ch subject every year after year after year. But I appreciate that perspective of, well, the, the students are always new and there's an opportunity to in influence somebody who's at an intersection of life that's really critical right in front of me here and now. That's that's great. That's shaping humans and hearts, not just minds. And that's that anthropological connection. <laughs> that's good. That's good. All right. So we're going to play a lightning round called Biggest. Okay. I'm going to give you a handful of categories. And uh, what is your biggest in each area? So the biggest misconception, we'll start with you, Michelle. Bis biggest misconception about homeschooling. So just to clarify before I jump into that, I didn't mention in my bio that no. I now homeschool my kids. Yes. Uh, I did uh, step down from full-time teaching, and I'm now homeschooling my kids in a combination of homeschool, public school, mm. um, schooling. So biggest misconception about homeschooling is that they are unsocialized people with butt-length hair and homemade skirts. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> okay, Kate, biggest... <laughs> <laughs> biggest misconception about public school that everybody is a liberal indoctrinator okay okay there we go <laughs> there we uh go. biggest advantage so, so michelle what is the biggest advantage of homeschooling over public schooling it is so much more efficient you need way less time to go way deeper on every subject you can customize the rigor individually for each student adjust the topics for each person instead of trying to just hit uh, a broad swath to get some people to engage uh, there's less boredom, more sleep, more play, more space for art and creativity. All of it can fit in without overstressing your kid out. That's good. I've heard you talk about that. Lots of fluff. Mm -hmm. All right, Kate, make your case. What's the biggest advantage of public school over and against homeschooling? Over and against? I don't know that I would say over and against all the time yeah. because I think that there are advantages as well to both. But um, civic community is absolutely the, the biggest advantage. I know that I have the opportunity to meet a wide variety of people, have mm. diversity of experiences, to be challenged as a person by the people that I'm meeting to be constantly in the arena of the, I loved how you did in the introduction, talking about the intersection of all the issues that mm -hmm. are existing. That's exciting. Yeah. 
and hard and challenging at the same time, but I think it is honestly the spark of life and it's really exciting about being in public schools. I love that. Thanks. All right. Biggest way that COVID affected you personally, Michelle? Uh, So in my side work, I do teaching and tutoring and violin lessons and trying to do that over Zoom, teaching a writing class uh, to some students over Zoom was miserable and so much more time consuming than it being in person. From a parenting uh, standpoint, we pulled one of our kids out and switched to homeschooling because the virtual component was not well. And then the going back to school when she was in first grade with six teeth missing and having to put a mask on when nobody could understand her, uh, we just decided that we were now switching uh, to becoming a homeschool family, I guess, having multiple kids out. I think for me, I would say the constant upheaval and perceived disappointment from the general public was something that I just psychologically had to deal with on a daily basis. You know, feeling like you're hearing these headlines one day as a public school teacher, you are the unsung hero of society because you were teaching kids as soon as the world shut down. Everybody thought, I can see what teachers are actually doing now. And then almost as quickly as that happened, the next two years have been constant criticism and constant under the scope, uh, microscope of, you know, scrutiny of people constantly. Wow. All right. So what's the biggest thing that's a stressor in your life uh, pertaining to education right now? Uh, teaching with my students always in proximity to the kitchen. <laughs> That's good. Okay. That's good. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I'm going to say, honestly, one of the biggest stressors that I feel and frustration is just how slow change is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. All right. Biggest opportunity in uh, education for you right now? Uh, there's a lot of freedom for what and how I could teach my kids and to adjust that to their needs and interests. And so that is a, a good thing to have. The sheer volume of people that I meet that are different than me every single day is a huge opportunity to learn, to grow myself, and to, I hope, maybe plant a seed with them as well. Yeah. So we know in Scripture, it's actually estimated that Jesus is referred to or called teacher around 60 times throughout the Gospels alone. In fact, he was referred to as a teacher who came from God. So how does this shape Jesus being called a teacher, how you approach your own work? When I think about Jesus being a teacher, I see that he cared deeply, not just about knowledge, but how that knowledge shaped people's hearts. And so when he was engaging with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, people, uh, they already knew a lot of the information he was talking about, but he was concerned with how it was shaping their action and the ways that they loved others. And so uh whether I was teaching public school or tutoring at home, uh, there's something that I deeply cared about was how the text I was teaching, how the information was going to be shaping people and how they were going to use this to implement out their real life action. I have a teaching philosophy statement that I share with my students. I have every day um, or every year, the beginning of each year that I've taught. And I try to share it with them at least once a week in just casual conversation and remind them I don't want them to just be better students of taking English language classes with me. Um, I want them to be better people. And so just like Michelle said, you know, using Jesus's principles of getting to their heart, getting them to connect what they're learning to the world much bigger than themselves and realize that there is so much that they have and the opportunity to learn and what a privilege that is for them to be able to learn. 
And I also think, you know, you look at the the conflicts that we have in, in the teaching world, not just with students and parents, but with each other as colleagues from time to time. And I think one of the biggest examples to me is the Matthew 18 principle, you know, and always going to the person. Sometimes when you're in education, there are so many pressure points and so little time to be able to interact. And when you have a tension point with somebody, Matthew 18 and going to the person and talking to them first before getting somebody else involved. And if you need to get somebody else involved, then you, you know, go to those higher people. But um, that is one of Jesus's teachings that absolutely guides everything I do. And it, I'll even call students on it when I hear them talking about another teacher. Have you talked mm. to your teacher about that? Mm. Or I'll let them know, you know, hey, you're making me uncomfortable because I'm hearing you talk about another teacher in a way that, you know, is not necessarily encouraging. And so um, that principle is is one of the major principles for me as I teach and interact with people. Mm. <clears throat> Those are both helpful. helpful. Thanks, guys. Um, so as you think about the wide variety of jobs uh, in our congregation, uh, every single job is going to have some aspect of it that tempts somebody to act in a way that's not honoring to God, to compromise in some way, right? So even as a pastor, uh, w- one thing that I've experienced is uh, the way that people see me, I, I am expected to be a tone setter and kind of maybe have it together and be a pace setter. And so if I am not actually feeling that way, or if I, if I am not uh, living up to the standard that I have set in my mind, I can project an image that's actually different than what I'm inside. And there can be this divergence of, of my outward appearance and my in- inward reality. And if I let that go for too long, that can lead to really bad things, right? So, so uh, we all have it, uh, it, it, it in our workplace to some degree. So what is it uh, about being in education, maybe your particular experience in education, where you find temptation to be a reality? I would say the work is never done. The t- temptation to overwork and not set rhythms of Sabbath and rest and actually to have um, healthy boundaries in place is probably the biggest temptation I think I personally face, but I, I would say across the board is, especially as more and more demands get put upon the the industry and, and all of our careers that we're working on, I think that's a, a really scary temptation. And I, I have to oftentimes just walk away and leave something undone. And then at that moment, what I will, and on a good day, remember to pray and say, okay, God, you have to take this and you have to run with it. Um, and then on a bad day, I will try to double down and get it done. <laughs> yeah, I would I would echo that, that the teaching is never done because in a sense, the time you're at school, you're face-to-face with your students the entire time. And then the time that you're not face-to-face with them when technically your job is over, you're supposed to be preparing for the next day or you're getting the emails from the students saying, I need help on this assignment. And you're saying, well, I'm getting ready for bed and they're doing their homework now at 930 at night. And do I respond to the email and help them to actually finish their work? Or do I say I'm going to you know, have a boundary and not do the work? And that dilemma of feeling like I want to stop, but if I do, there's consequences of people not getting the information that I need to get to them is hard. Uh, there's also a temptation uh, with teachers to be very complainy. Um, mm. It's an incredibly complaining environment. I think a lot of people feel um, un- underappreciated uh, and judge- judged by each other and by the people around them and by the parents and by the students. And so it makes for like kind of a nasty lunchroom mm. experience, hallway conversations, uh, people feeling like um, I need to gripe about this parent that just called or this student or this administration, you know, that uh, just changed something that I just had figured out. And so uh, trying to be a light in that situation, because even in times when I would try to not complain, I would then get 
bashed for not complaining. Like you're judging us by not complaining, you know? And so it was like, you couldn't <laughs> win. So true. Yeah. <laughs> so true. <laughs> wow. I imagine that's made all the more difficult because as a teacher, you have to put, put on, you know, your, your smile face and your non-complaining attitude in front of students. And then it's, it's super tempting as soon as you hit that, that lunchroom or the hallway. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that guys. All right. So, um, a lot of people, um, are maybe wondering uh, about a particular, uh, area of discussion, uh, when it comes to education, because we not only have, uh, we're not only talking about education in general, but talk, talking about public school versus homeschool and maybe private school is on people's minds as well. And when people think about the difference between those two from a Christian perspective, I've heard a lot of people, uh, say that the primary benefit of the homeschool or the private Christian school environment is that you get to be vocal and explicit about Jesus, and you get to teach the curriculum that you want, and you get to have a lot more control over that. We have less control over that as a parent uh, with kids who are in public schools or as a teacher uh, who is having having curriculum handed to you. So let's go there for a second, okay? So uh, how have you guys navigated the tension? You have both worked in public schools. Maybe speak from that experience. How have you navigated the tension between you know curriculum being vocal about Jesus, being salt and light uh, in a way that is winsome, uh, in a way that is faithful to God, but also without being being at risk of losing your job. So I think that there is a big misconception out there where people say teachers just need to keep their views out of the classroom, but you cannot talk for an entire class period about information without having bias and value communicated. Mm. You cannot teach history in any viewpoint or literature in any viewpoint, even science because of the applications of how you do it without having the the values and um, applications of how that comes out. I taught American literature uh, for a long time, and so that would be like you're covering the Puritans and the Enlightenment and then the Romantics and then all these people that are saying specific views of what they think the world is like and what they think God is like and what they think people are like. And then yet as a teacher, you're supposed to go in there and have this neutral, you know, in quotes, like neutral perspective, but you can't teach those neutrally. And so I I entered in... um, being a little bit more anxious about the separation of church and state and feeling like, you know, there was a big tension in my department. Most of them uh, were not believers. I came in for Wheaton College and on the top of my paperwork said for Christ and his kingdom. And so they were like, what are you going to do in here when you walk in the classroom? And so I, I felt a little anxious about that. But I had coworkers on my team who were explicitly working to unconvert students. And I would hear them cheer for kids when they would say, oh, Mr. So-and-so, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. Aren't you proud of me? And all these sorts of things that I would see them explicitly doing, and they weren't getting their hands slapped for um, you know, putting their views in the classroom. So I said, well, if they're doing it, then I'm going to do it equally in my direction mm-hmm. and see if I get a warning, and I never did because they were doing it the other direction. So mm-hmm. I, um, I, I moved from being overly cautious to being um, strategic and trying to be able to work those in in the places where I felt like it was appropriate and natural. Uh, I never tried to coerce students into it, but I tried to, when there was value statements and value points, I tried to um, make sure I didn't omit Christianity and omit my faith, but present it alongside the other things that were there. That's good. I've always found, um, like Michelle, I was anxious as a you know young teacher trying to navigate you know not violating the First Amendment and you know having you know separation of church and state in place. But as I was very fortunate to land in a community that was actually pretty friendly towards people of Christian faith. And so um, that's changed over the years. Uh, we have definitely gotten a much more diverse community that's um, been involved. Mm-hmm. 
But the community where I teach, I was encouraged to really teach, you know, what the history was of this. And so I happen to teach British literature. And so like Michelle said, you go through the periods of history and you can't talk about how history has developed without talking about the influence of Christianity. Sure. And so I've caught myself very fortunate to teach a curriculum that kind of naturally allows you to talk about worldview. Mm-hmm. And when I'm I'm always very careful to tell my students I'm not assuming anybody understands what the history of anyone's faith is. And so here's the history. This is why Canterbury Tales was written, mm-hmm. you know, to talk about the issues of the church and state in its day. This is why when we talk about um, British romantics and they're talking about God and they're questioning God and they're angry with God why they're doing this and, and why this happens. And so there's just kind of a natural point that happens um, in the content that I happen to teach. But I will also say that staying focused on you know the skills that you're learning, kids need to know about the history of the world. And like Michelle said, you know, there's there bias enters into everything that we do. And I'm am careful to try and present it in a way that is accessible to everyone that they would be able to ask questions if they had those questions and not feel that they couldn't bring that forward. Um, That's something I see actually that's shifted a lot with students over the two decades that I've been teaching. Um, Fewer and fewer students are willing to ask questions. And so I have to kind of assume that people don't know anything and share with them what is actually being... um, expressed. And so that's something that is a tension point in the content that I teach. But I also like to focus quite a bit on just the skills and what skills are being taught um, helps to give validity to the information that I'm, I happen to be teaching it with. So, Yeah. What's interesting in both of your responses that I appreciate so much is um, coming to the realization and knowing that we all have our own biases, right? And being able to naturally have conversations that point back to Jesus, which I think is so helpful for our parents and our teachers and our administrators. Um, I I want to... I want to point out that all of us around this table have kiddos that are in school, right? Um, And one of the main things that I hear all the time is just how overwhelmed and how busy we are, right? Um, Especially two girls. I have two girls in junior high. And it seems after COVID happened, students and teachers' schedules became decentralized, right? Like education is wildly different. There's no going back to pre-COVID. So what what do you both do to implement boundaries? What are some spiritual rhythms that you have in place to help make sure that your own spiritual relationship with Jesus is healthy? I think, first of all, first and foremost, is just being intentional about scheduling, about keeping those spiritual rhythms in place. That's before you know, I, I talk about rhythms before I talk about any practical go-to things. I think the intentionality behind it absolutely has to go before anything that you're doing in scheduling. You have to say, I am drawing a line in the sand and this is my time. And so 
for me, when I wake up first thing in the morning is my time to do my devotionals, my reading. Um, I will go straight to the bathroom. And that is where my Bible is. Because if I go anywhere from, you know, my bed to any place else, I will get distracted. And so my Bible sits right next to my sink. And in the morning, I get up. And after, you know, I use the bathroom first thing in the morning, I will get up. And the book of, of Word of God is the very first thing that I open up. And then you know, being intentional about making sure we get to worship on Sunday mornings, making sure that uh, we are involved in family uh, activities here at church, um, being engaged in intentionally planning time with friends. Although I will say sometimes friends are actually better about reaching out to get my, on my schedule than I am about reaching to get out on their schedule. Um, but those are really the the things that kind of intentionally get put in place to be able to um, maintain rhythms and of worship and so and really make sure that my heart is still very full. I'd say it's the opposite for us because I still have young kids in the house and we're homeschooling and I don't necessarily have that break from them. Uh, I need to wait until the evening when they are asleep and I know that that is a time when uh, I won't be interrupted and so uh, we do um, my husband and I do our devotions tonight every night before bed. And so we finish the day uh, that way. Uh, and then in the morning before we start our work, we we pray to send each other off. And so we have those bookend rhythms that I find to be uh, kind of helpful in anchoring each end of the day. Yeah, that's good. I want to dive in a little bit deeper and ask you a follow-up question, Michelle, because you talked about being a public school teacher, but then breaking away from that and becoming a homeschool teacher. Tell tell us a little bit about that journey, because I think a lot of moms and a lot of teachers are actually taking that journey right now. So if you could share a little bit about that story, I, I think that would be helpful. Yes. So uh, one of the initial appeals about education was the flexibility of thinking that I could still maintain uh, some access to the education field even after I had kids. And so strategically, I felt like this would be um, something that if I knew that I wanted to have a family, uh, that this might be more conducive to something that I can kind of maybe go in and out of the field or maintain some part-time uh, things on the side. But it got hard as I got into it, and I really loved it. And it was hard the longer that I taught, you know, it was almost hard to feel like, uh, do I really want to step away from this in this capacity? And it took some time to like reimagine how would these skills look like in an alternate work setting, aka my home. And so, um, we got to the point where it was no longer necessary financially for me to be working. I think when you're at the point where you need the two parents working, and even if you have kids or not, but you're saying we have to work, we need this to be able to pay off debt or buy the house or uh, achieve certain financial goals. But when it gets to the point where you have kids and you no longer are required to work, then you are actively deciding, uh, am I going to pursue the career or am I going to pause and um, stay at home and invest in a different aspect of our family mission. And I think that that is an unfair uh, tension that gets put on a lot of women. Uh, you have people on both sides saying, uh, hey, if you walk away from your career, you are squandering your education and your skill and your ambition, and you're setting women back with their uh, pay scale and uh, ability to rise up into leadership, and you got to stay in there. I even had people um, who weren't judgmental of me but being compassionate, saying, hey, you have so much to offer. You're going to jip people of being able to be your student and your coworker. And so uh, on that side, but then on the other side, there's the, hey, your your kids are at home being raised by other people um, while you're working. And 
you don't have to be working. And so uh, that dilemma of having to feel like I'm at this crossroads and having crossroads and I'm having to decide uh, how to do that. Um, we were at some other cha- uh, transition points within our, our family trying to decide, are we going to continue on to two separate missions, you know, two different careers that we're focusing on two different schedules and two different sets of people, or are we going to condense that into one? And are we going to do that at the same time of expanding our family into mm-hmm. multiple kids? And so at that time I was able to imagine, um, how I could grow a side business of still being able to work with teenagers and tutor, teach violin lessons, have access to that professional outlet, staying engaged with the schools in my community. Um, And then when it seemed clear that um, our oldest was not thriving in public school, I was already equipped and able to stay home and and homeschool her. Can I ask one follow-up question off that? Sure. There's probably a few people listening who are um, wondering with mm-hmm. maybe some recent changes in the last few years uh, to public school systems, is it time for me to pull my kid out and to do private school or homeschooling? Can you just speak to the parent who's maybe wondering that question today? I think you should be actively engaged. I think you should pay attention to the things that are changing and the way that your district is rolling that out because um, it's been rolling out differently in each district for the last couple of years, but, but pretty soon it's going to all be about the same. Um, it is um, uh, the, the sexuality curriculum being normalized uh, at a young age and frequently uh, without students being able to voice their differences if they have family beliefs that are different. Uh, it, is, it is a very strong uh, environment for that. Um, we have been trying to, as a family within our district, maintain the ability to opt in when we want to, but opt out when we mm-hmm. want. And so we have worked hard, very hard the last few years to develop really good relationships with our elementary and now our middle school principals, um, being um, engaged, like saying, even though we are our homeschool primarily, we are still claiming this elementary school or this middle school mm-hmm. as like um, our school space as opposed to just getting like all the way into the homeschool socialized community Um and so, like, our kids are in Girl Scouts and orchestra and the clubs, and we go to the uh, the PTO events and things like that. We write thank you notes to the the principals and, you know, for the ways mm. that they help us. And that has opened doors for other families to be able to engage uh, part-time mm. in school, as they've seen. We want to opt out of certain subjects, or we want to um, opt in. You know, maybe we were completely out of the public school, but we want to be able to access some of those resources and programming that we didn't know we could do before. And so... I think trying to, as believers, um, maintain a, a healthy relationship with our schools, even in the midst of thinking we want to disengage from some of these um, polarizing subjects right now mm-hmm. um, and have more control over how our kids are being normalized in some of these subjects. Mm. Guys, thanks so much for that. Uh, one last question for both of you. We did a churchwide survey last year that uh, asked people to identify their field of work. And we found that the top three fields of uh, work included business, healthcare, and education. So there's lots of folks listening right now who are in the field of education. So uh, to finish our time together, what is a piece of advice or encouragement that you could leave our listeners who are in the field of education with? I am going to echo what Michelle said in her last answer is just to stay engaged, to not give up. Um, We have quite a bit that is pulling on us in every which direction and um, keep asking smart questions, keep, you know, talking to people in your community, both your colleagues as well as fellow parents who live in the community. Um, Really just stay curious 
and maintain a curious, open mind and give people the the benefit of the doubt that they want to do good work. Mm. That's good. Mm. And I would say uh, that for those of you that are uh, believers in the education field to just stay the course and don't give up uh, that these things that make you wonder, is this the time when I throw in the towel and I switch careers? Um, am, am I conflicted out of being able to do this? Uh, this is not a time for believers to vacate teaching um, and, and leading in these these places. We have to be in a place of influence and a place of of uh, interpreting this, these curriculums, these uh, ideas, these times uh, to our students and so that they can hear uh, someone who loves Christ communicating uh, these things. Mm, so good, ladies. That. Thank you. Thank you for being present. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. I think it's you're just a huge, immense blessing uh, to this conversation. All right, folks, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Faith at Work. Our conversations happen every other week where we will have another interview to help you think critically about faith and work intersecting in creative and inspiring ways because every job matters. Also, you can subscribe and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Email us your suggestions, questions, or ideas to workpodcast at ccclife.org. Lastly, tell your friends that their job matters too and invite them to join along in the conversation. We'll talk to you soon.